Thank you very much. Um, a couple of riders to this. Firstly, uh, I'm a throat specialist and I have laryngitis. So I, I so apologise if I've not quite got the volume that I normally do and if it fades a little bit and I'll be taking some sips from that. Also, if you're coming expecting to hear uh, detailed science about stem cells, you're not going to get it because I'm a surgeon and I rely on a, a broad team of scientists at UCL to tell me anything at all scientific. So, but I will do my best to answer questions at the end, and hopefully what I present today will be an overview of whether, where I feel we might be in terms of being able to build organs using stem cells. Uh, I'm going to, uh, first of all, explain a little bit about the background to my own work, uh, give you some examples of how we've applied stem cells to build some organs and put them into people, uh, and then I will also then follow it by explaining what problems we've encountered, which I think will give you an idea of the areas where we need a lot more work in the future. Uh, and disappointingly, we're not at the point where we're going to be turning around and being able to offer you new organs all around this lecture theatre at the end of the lecture. But in some years, who knows? Uh, and then I'll, at the end, just tell you a, a few areas where, where we're going at the moment worldwide uh, in, in other parts of the world in terms of developing organs with stem cells. So that's kind of what we're going to do. Uh, so you could put the word surgeon in there. We're, surgeons are very humble fellows. And they're very, if any of you have ever been visiting a surgeon, you'll, you'll know how hu humility is a hallmark, really. But uh, this is, this is uh, from this book here, which uh, is a very good read, actually. Philip Ball, he used to write for the BMJ. Uh, and it's a book about man's desire to try and recreate man, uh, keep life going, be a bit godlike and, and recreate life. And there's a lot of it in there. Uh, and he's not being complimentary when he says that these people become Prometheus, as you will see. Okay, so I'm a head and neck surgeon. I worked a lot with head and neck cancer patients historically. Rebuilding people after head and neck cancer surgery is a really major challenge. Um, and many of the techniques we use are very old. Uh, they have been improved upon by rehabilitation, but we're still very limited in the number of things we can do for people. Um, surgery has actually taken a bit of a backseat in recent years to using chemotherapy and radiotherapy because of the limitations of our ability to, to regenerate things. And the idea is that you use chemotherapy and radiotherapy to preserve organs so that you don't actually have to take them out. And the same is true for bladders and uterus and lungs and breast organ preservation treatments. The trouble is a lot of the organs left behind no longer function the way they should. So these things are a bit of a blunderbuss, a bit unpredictable in who they affect. So we're still left with the idea that if we could actually raise the threshold for doing surgery, if we could provide people with functional organs, we may not have to use such, such toxic treatments. Furthermore, there is a huge shortage of transplant organs worldwide. Uh, transplantation is now mainstream. Uh, but it has a lot of issues. The availability of, of uh, donors, the ethical issues, the religious issues, uh, the possibility of transmitting infection, and, of course, the use of immunosuppression. Uh, when you put somebody on immunosuppression after an organ transplant, you reduce the length of their life by perhaps up to 10 years. That's a major handicap. So rebuilding organs would be a great thing. Uh, this is somebody with a completely closed overlarynx and somebody whose larynx is fixed in the open position due to trauma. So there's a wide variety of reasons why I might want to replace people's, people's organs. The conventional operation, in fact, for, replace, uh, for treating laryngeal cancer is uh, laryngectomy, where you take the whole thing out. It's very effective, but it's actually the same operation that was invented in Vienna in 1863, and it's not changed in that time. So we really should be doing rather better by applying science today. 
Uh, is loss of laryngeal function so bad? Well, if you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, it's probably quite a good thing using laryngeal function. But, uh, so, is it so bad? Well, actually, if any of you want to go out for a meal tonight, you're going to be using your larynx quite a lot. And not just for talking. You actually need your larynx to protect your lungs when you're swallowing. That's the main function of the larynx, is so that you don't aspirate food and drink. Any of you, oh, it's a lunchtime lecture. You're eating now. So, okay, so using your larynx is right now, so that you don't get pneumonia from eating and drinking. You also need to fix air in your lungs in order to uh, be able to strain. Uh, you need to fix the vocal cords together to be able to cough, give you a good cough. Lifting heavy weights, any of these things. You also need air going through in order to sniff and to taste. So to taste their food and smell it, they need a functioning larynx too. And at the end of this meal, should there be close friends, there may even be some kissing going on. And for kissing too, you need air going through through your lips. You can try that at home. Well, you can try it now if you want. I'm very open-minded. It's not a real problem. But, uh, so it does have a major impact. And of course, the voice. The voice, in, in about 1800, 20% of people use their voice as their main tool of work. And despite the expansion in the internet and so on, something like 80% of people working today would regard their voice as absolutely critical to the way they function. So maintaining voice is clearly crucial. How might you replace an organ, larynx or anything else? Well, you can rebuild things with bits of tissue that are just lying around. And, for example, if we take out a jaw for cancer, you can borrow the fibula, the bone at the side of the leg here, with skin over it and with an artery and vein attached to it and plumb it into the neck. You can break the fibula, replate it into the shape of a jaw and put it back in place. So that's a very good example of how you can use other parts of the body to rebuild bits that are missing. But you always will have a donor site. And, and that has a lot of donor complications from doing that. And you can have fractures and so on. Plus, the tissue never looks the same. It never really completely functions the same. It can scar up. It isn't sensate. It doesn't feel anything. And getting uh, autologous tissues to move again is a really, really major challenge. So there are definite limitations. And it doesn't look the same either. So it's not perfect. And for complex organs that are doing things like kidneys and livers and so on, you're really never going to achieve that through moving other bits of the body around. Prosthetics... Uh, were a great idea tried in, in the 70s for various uh, things, but actually making plastics or metal stick in the body is very difficult, particularly if they're exposed to the air or all the mucous membranes, which are highly colonised. Getting things to stick and to function is very difficult. So prostheses have never really done it. Um, allografting, this is the classical transplantation. I've already been through its value, but also the really significant drawbacks about the way we apply transplantation today. And then there's regenerative medicine, uh, which is this new, exciting field uh, where we can possibly regenerate tissues and organs. Actually, it's not that new, as you'll see in a minute. OK, so this is the world's first laryngeal transplant, classical allograft. Uh, and this is kind of what I was working on for most of my uh, research career, was how we could do better transplants of head and neck tissues. Um, and this was the first one done in uh, Ohio in 1998. And the patient's still okay today, and he's worked as a professional motivational speaker. But he's always had a tracheostomy because we couldn't get the nerves to work, or they couldn't. Um, and he's still on immunosuppression. Uh, and his voice is starting to fade a bit now, but he's done pretty well. And then in... Uh, okay. Uh, you going to run? Come on. There you go. Okay. So a couple of years ago, I was phoned up by my friend uh, Peter Belaski at the University of California, Davis, to say he had an exceptional patient who not only had a totally destroyed larynx and airway, but was also already on immunosuppression because she'd had a kidney transplant. So in a way, she was an ideal candidate to do the world's second laryngeal transplant. 
Um, and we've done an awful lot of work in between times on getting nerves to work, on understanding the immunity a lot better. So we thought we were in a better place to, to do this. So last year, a team from Europe and from America uh, got together and we transplanted a, an organ into a, a 50-year-old lady from California. And this is what it looks like, or at least looked like at, at the beginning of the year. Uh, it moves, uh, it's sensate, uh, it's in the right place. It doesn't move perfectly, uh, and she's taken a long time to start swallowing it. But clearly, you know, it looks and moves just like a larynx. So that was a guarded success. She's also got a tracheostomy tube blocked off now, so that's quite good too. Um, nonetheless, she's going to have to remain on immunosuppression. She was an exceptional patient. She was somebody who had a very rare condition, and she was already on immunosuppression. So this is not something that's going to be widely performed in the immediate future, and still leaves us asking questions about how we can replace complex organs. Okay, so here's this Prometheus. There are actually two Promethean myths, and this is the first myth. This is about animation. Animal means soul, uh, and it's about putting soul into things. And the first story about Prometheus is that he used clay to create people and was able to, to make them move. And by making them move, that generated the soul. Movement and soul were closely related to one another. Um, the more senior gods were quite annoyed about this because they felt it was their place to decide who lived and who died. Uh, and so they were pretty irritated, but not as irritated as they were later on, as you will find. So Prometheus, I guess, he started to... Uh, the legend of Prometheus led on to things like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, the idea that you could create things from dead things and make them move and give them spirit. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good story. Okay, um, this is Anthony Atala. Anthony Atala is the uh, head of Wake Forest University uh, Institute of Regenerative Medicine, uh, WFM. And at around 2000, he started to apply tissue engineering techniques to rebuilding bladders uh, in babies born without uh, sufficient bladders. Uh, and he used collagen scaffolds and seeded them with muscle cells and with epithelial cells. So not stem cells. Although, if you grow these things in culture, what you tend to grow out in culture are not the totally mature endpoint cells. They're what are called progenitor cells. They're cells which have moved on quite a lot from being stem cells, but are not fully differentiated, because those are the ones that tend to be selected out by culture. Slightly multipotential. Nonetheless, those are the ones that he was able to seed these scaffolds with and implant these new bladders into babies born without bladders. Previously, bladders with, uh, babies with bladder agenesis um, were reliant on um, urostomies, so they're having to basically pass urine into bags for the rest of their lives. Now, actually, the first time this was done, it worked for a bit and then didn't work. The second time it worked for a bit longer. The third time it worked for a bit longer. It's actually been many years before Tony Atala's group have really got this right. And, and that's a very important lesson. Uh, people worked on heart transplantation for many years uh, in, in the States, particularly in Boston, uh, and they'd invested vast amounts of money in it. And then a, a young uh, trainee from South Africa uh, visited them for three months and said, well we're not going to get much further just by going around in circles, asking the same questions, uh, asking new questions, asking new questions. We're never going to be at the perfect point to put these hearts into people. He went back to South Africa and did it. And the first time Christian Barnard did a heart transplant, the patient died. Now, he might well have died anyway, probably would have done. And the second time, the patient lived a bit longer, and the third one lived a bit longer. But it was many, many deaths before they got heart transplant right. Likewise with Tony, Atala's bladders, it took a long time. Now, the reason I mention this is 
that there's a lot of hype when you, uh, and you'll hear some stories in a minute about the patients we've done, a lot of hype when you hear about patients receiving a new this, that or the other, made from this, that or the other. But following on from the hype, there has to be a degree of realism and that it does take many, many years. And, and there needs to be a, a great deal of balance in the way that things are reported, the way that things are presented to society, uh, and also in the expectations this raises too. Uh, and commonly, it's the partnership between surgeons and scientists that are really going to take things forward. Nonetheless, Tony Tyler was inspirational. And by looking at his work, reported some years on, by the time he'd got good cohorts that worked well, we felt that actually this was a good prospect for rebuilding airways too, that we could do something similar. And so with a colleague of mine, Professor Macchiarini in Spain, we worked on using stem cells in pigs to rebuild the trachea. The trachea is the windpipe. It's actually probably the simplest thing you could probably start with if you wanted to rebuild an organ. Technically, it's kind of an organ, but it might be regarded as a tissue. All it has to do is conduct air one way and mucus the other, so a very simple tube. It's also very thin, so its demands in terms of oxygen and nutrients are fairly limited, and its biomechanical properties are well described. So as a starting point for rebuilding things, we thought it was a good place to start. And we got some good results in pigs. Good, regenerative medicine. So, as I said at the beginning, it's a very sexy thing, and uh, it's well, this new thing. But actually, it's not that new. When I took my entrance exam for university, the question was all about the prospects for gene therapy. That was a long time ago. And these days, we are just about seeing the real products of gene therapy coming through in really striking and helpful ways. Some great work being done at Moorfields, for example, where they're now able to cure people with certain congenital uh, inherited forms of blindness. Spectacular results, but it's taken 20-odd years to get to that point. So it's not new, nor is cell biology new, nor are stem cell biology new, or biomaterials in ITL. None of these things are new. The, what's new is the appreciation that by working together in large multidisciplinary teams across institutions frequently, you can actually get something which is much greater than the whole. And by willingness in society and regulators and, and medical systems to accept first-in-man procedures, we're able to actually start to get these things into patients at an earlier stage than we previously thought possible. So it's the team building, but also the recognition that we need to go back repeatedly from clinic to scientist to answer questions raised. So it's teams, and it's not new, but it is very exciting. This is a windpipe, a section thereof. Um, this is a bioreactor. Bioreactors are simply boxes in which you do stuff. Again, there's a lot of um, hype around bioreactors, but they are, that's all they are. You can have little tiny ones, or you can have great big enormous ones. Uh, and here we have bioreactors which we use to take the cells out of donor tissues. What we don't want here is the problems you have with transplanted organs where tissues are going to reject. So what you try and do is remove those components of a tissue which would make it reject, in particular the HLA molecules. And so we use uh, a combination of um, uh, washing with detergents and enzymes, uh, which is constantly being refined, this protocol, to make it quicker and, and more efficient. Uh, and this removes those components of cells which otherwise make it reject. And in our patients, we've not seen any signs of rejection at all so far. So it's clearly effective in that regard. At first, we thought it would remove all cells, but it doesn't do that, as I'll show you later. And we do that in a bioreactor, and then you can furthermore take any cells that you've grown and put them on the scaffold in the bioreactor uh, before you implant it in a patient. And what you're left with is a, a bit of tissue that looks a bit like a, a bit of dead organ, really, which is exactly what it is. Now, amusingly, if you go into Philip Ball's book, you'll see this illustration, which is of an alchemist from about 500 years ago. 
And what they were doing was they took putrefied matter, they took a bit of dead tissue, commonly from the placenta, in fact, and they would put it in a dedicated container uh, in a culture medium. In fact, it, they would then rotate it so that it was in air and culture medium. And it, frequently they would have it one within another. So they'd have two rotating within another on the basis that it was like um, the celestial bodies rotating around one another. And the idea was that by doing this, you would regenerate human beings. In fact, you'd, you'd make these things homunculi, which means little men, which is what I am. And uh, you can see a little, little man in there. He's got more hair than I have, actually. I point this out because, because, again, you know, there's so much hype around this. We all think we're so clever. We know so much about science and technology and surgery. It's all very exciting. But perhaps in 500 years, people will look back at what we've been doing and be just as amused by the concept that you could grow little men in bottles like this. And perhaps we're trying to do the same thing that the alchemists were doing. Uh, of course, placentas, by the way, placentae, are uh, a very rich source of stem cells. So they were possibly onto something without really knowing it. Okay. So we'd reached a certain point in our pig studies where we realised that if you implant scaffolds alone, you get to a certain level, but they don't tend to survive that long. They scar up. If you put in epithelial cells, then they're protected from infection. And if you add chondrocytes, cartilage cells, you get a degree of rigidity. The best thing is a combination of all three, and the pigs who received all three did the best. Uh, in 2008, uh, Paolo, saw, uh, my colleague in Spain, saw a patient from Colombia who had had a stenosis of the airway, which had been treated in lots of different countries and really had reached the point where she was going to lose one lung and possibly both lungs uh, as a result of airway blockage. Um, so she'd exhausted conventional treatments and was in, on the ITU a lot. And we put it to her and to the authorities in Barcelona at that time, which is where she was, that we'd reached a certain point in our preclinical experiments and this was technology which we couldn't prove would work, but there was no conventional technology for her. And if she was willing, would they be willing as clinical ethics committees to let us try? Uh, and they were. Um, we, in fact, grew up uh, her bone marrow stem cells here in Britain, in Bristol, where I was at the time, uh, and her epithelial cells from her nose and from her lungs uh, in our labs in Bristol. Um, in a very Heath Robinson way, I mean, in a way which now the MHRA, I'm sure, would not permit. They did know about it and did give us permission to do it at that time. But having grown it all up, uh, we then flew it back to Spain and implanted it. So I'll just run this. Oh, hey, go back. Go back. There we go. Uh, how many people have seen this video before? I'm getting. Yeah. You're the only one, Mariana. Uh, how many times have you seen this video, Mariana? Many times. Okay, so uh, this is the stenosis of the airway. Uh, very, very tight. Um, it was because the surgeries had shortened the airway, it was pulling it up on the aorta, the big blood vessel in the chest, which was further compressing it and making it work even less efficiently. This was the donor trachea, which was from a car accident victim in, uh, in Catalonia. The Catalonian transplant authorities uh, rapidly swung into action. They had an um, uh, opt-out um, system in Catalonia. Uh, they, have no, they have far fewer problems with transplant donors than we do. And I know that discussion is ongoing in the UK at the moment. Certainly in Wales, I think they're going to introduce it, aren't they? Uh, so we took epithelial cells and bone marrow stem cells. It just so happened, serendipitously, that uh, one of the labs along from me was run by Anthony Hollander, who is an expert in chondrocytes. And he's been working on differentiating stem cells into chondrocytes for many years with the idea of replacing knee joints, and hopefully he'll be able to help me in due course with that. So serendipitously, we already have protocols for doing this, for making uh, MSCs, mesenchymal stem cells, grow out into chondrocytes. 
uh, and we're able to see the outside of this uh, with chondrocytes and watch them grow in prior to implanting it. So we had monolayers of epithelial cells and chondrocytes and put this in. So we chopped out the offending bit, or Paolo did all this because he's a very talented surgeon, uh, implanted that. And she uh, didn't need to be ventilated postoperatively. She went home after 10 days. Uh, she's working full-time looking after her kids three and a half years down the line now. Now, to say that it had all gone perfectly is not true. And indeed, it would be absolutely stunning if, if it had. But it went extraordinarily well, I have to say. Um, now, she had to have a short stent put in. Uh, that's something to hold open the airway for a six-month period for a, a stenosis at the proximal end of the graft. And that has now recurred, but she only needs that stretching up with a balloon, which can be done endoscopically once every six months. So it's really not that bad, and certainly no worse than anybody that's had a lung transplant who needs similar uh, dilatations. That's something that we need to look at, about why she developed that stenosis. And, and we need to ask careful questions about that. But the rest of the graft is healthy. And then in 1999, uh, sorry, sorry, 2009, I was approached by Martin Elliott, who's the uh, cardiothoracic surgical head at uh, Great Ormond Street, um, about a patient that they had just seen um, who'd been referred down from Northern Ireland. So this child, child was born with very tight stenosis and uh, also with, with some congenital cardiac defects and had to have major surgery at birth and had the form of reconstruction that was used at that time, uh, which was a kind of pickled trachea really, um, and, and, but that kind of kept him alive and held things open. As he grew, uh, the, at age two, he had a bleed where the um, stent that was holding him open eroded into a blood vessel, so that all had to be redone. Uh, but between the age of two and the age of ten, he was okay, albeit held open by more metal stents. These are uh, mesh meshes of metal which you can insert into the airway and as the child grows you can put balloons down and make them bigger. However, over time these metal stents erode through the wall. They become passable, they can go beyond it. He came down for breakfast one day uh, in, in Belfast and coughed and blood started pouring out of his mouth. It, it eroded into his aorta, in fact. Um, happily, it clotted off. He went to Belfast Royal, uh, uh, Royal Victorian firm, isn't it? Belfast, uh, and was, was flown to Great Ormond Street and stabilised. What we didn't have here was time. We didn't have the amount of time we had to plan Claudia's operation, in his case. And so we used a, a modified protocol and literally threw a protocol together for which you can certainly criticise some of the things we did, and I'll, we'll go into that in a minute. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we were able to uh, get a, an off-the-shelf scaffold, which we'd retrieved earlier for experimental purposes, and recellularise it in the operating theatre. Uh, using his own bone marrow stem cells, which were not differentiated into chondrocytes. They were just taken straight out of the bone marrow, sent up to the uh, raw free cell therapy labs, where they separated out a, um, a MSC-rich fraction. Uh, I have to say, we did have a few days, so we'd actually given him some so a cytokine called GCSF in the meantime, which boosts your production of, of um, bone marrow stem cells. So he had an enriched fraction, which was then um, transported back to the operating theatre, where his heart operation was ongoing under bypass. Martin Elliott, a very skillful surgeon, was able to repair the aorta. Um, and we then poured the bone marrow stem cells over this graft in the operating theatre and added some cytokines too, which we thought might be helpful. It wasn't a complete guess. This was based on protocols which are in clinical use for regenerative medicine purposes for skin regeneration and bone regeneration in Germany at that time. Uh, and in particular, we used something called TGF-beta, uh, which is known to induce chondrogenesis, 
uh, and osteogenesis if it's left to progress. And also something called EPO, which I'm sure you've heard, um, EPO, Boucher, red blood count and stuff. And EPO is known to induce angiogenesis and help support new blood vessel growth. So we, and both of these are licensed for use in man, and there was a good rationale for using them. So we squirted them onto the graft, and we continued to give him EPO every other day for a, for a few weeks afterwards. Uh, this was implanted, uh, and, and it worked. It saved his life, essentially. Uh, we also put in a new sort of stent, because we wanted a stent that was not metal. Uh, and so we used an experimental stent, which had been developed in the Czech Republic, uh, to keep this open. So that was March of last year, uh, and it saved his life. But he has not had an uncomplicated course since then. In particular, he's, uh, he was in hospital for about three months. So, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't want anybody else fainting. <laughs> uh, I'll skip over that. <laughs> they were, uh, he was in hospital for about three months uh, for some reasons which I'll show you in a minute. Uh, he had to have a lot of endoscopies to keep the airway clear. Uh, subsequently, he went home, he went back to Belfast, uh, and he was well enough to be on Irish national television at Christmas playing the drums. And you can actually look that up. He's called Kieran Finn, if you want to look it up. He's there playing drums on national, national television. Um, and he's gone back to school in the new year. Uh, he also has grown in height, uh, grown in weight, uh, and he's coming into hospital less and less frequently now. So uh, here, his white count went right up, uh, and that might have caused some issues, actually. Uh, this is the first problem we encountered was this influx of, of uh, very dense secretions that we'd never seen in an airway before. We sent it off, and in fact what this turns out to be is something called DNA nets. Uh, these are uh, neutrophil entrapment uh, traps, um, and basically they're produced by dead neutrophils for dead neutrophils to capture bacteria. Uh, and nobody's ever reported seeing such a large quantity of this. Now, of course, we've boosted this kid's white count. He's got a raw surface, and he's also got this um, irritating uh, stent in the way. And we think it's this combination of factors which induce this incredibly tenacious material needed sucking out every few days for weeks on end. Something we definitely want to avoid in future. We did find that DNA-based treatment, however, helped that. Uh, and this is what it looked like in about three months, so it's all starting to heal over now. He's still got the stent in place, which we think was also causing a lot of problems with granulation tissue. And we certainly would not use this form of stent again in future. Um, and this is what it looks like uh, about six months ago. It looks better than that now. So it's now got a complete covering of epithelium, uh, much of which, but not all of which, is ciliated. That is, it's got these cilia to help things move. So he now has an airway. It is epithelialized. One thing that was never a problem is, is angiogenesis. Um, all of the grass we've, we've put into animals or people have rapidly developed blood supply within about five to seven days so that you get touch bleeding. So, so vessels really do go into these things very quickly um, and for reasons which I, I hypothesize are related to the content. Um, here, this was just a proteomic analysis of the exudate showing that it probably was DNA nets. This is some histology. That's a normal trachea. Um, that is... Uh, the trachea that we took out, which was horrible. Uh, this was decellularized trachea. So this is what decellularized material looks like. It's got no cells up there, but you still see little black dots in these lacunae here. So it's probably little bits of cell left behind. We check for the presence of DNA, which is very irritant, so we make sure we've washed away the DNA. But it's very likely there are bits of cells left behind. It's not completely acellular in that sense. And these are ciliated cells, which you can now see on the surface. So, so he's now got the cilia that we wanted there in the first place. We also subjected the scaffold to proteomics. 
Uh, and this was really, really interesting because we pulled out, um, if you, if you uh, apply proteomic techniques to um, a number of these scaffolds, it's been very difficult to do this up until now because there's so much collagen dominating the protein content of these scaffolds that actually really um, drilling down to all the smaller molecules present in small quantities has been extremely difficult. But the most modern machines with high throughput techniques, you can do that now. You can get rid of the masking effects of the huge weight of elastin and collagen and see the other stuff. And it's really interesting because you can group them into molecules which are likely to really help these graphs in many ways. Angiogenic molecules, things which um, uh, affect immunity, things which affect stem cell migration, differentiation, and a whole host of other things. Now, of course, they might have adverse effects as well as positive effects. And this is going to be a really interesting area of research for the future that, that we at UCL are actually at the cutting edge of, working out which of these molecules really helps. And this is, this is really very important as we go forward because what we'd like to do in the future is not have to rely on organ donors for this as well, but to be able to use some form of synthetic grafts. Um, and maybe a combination of synthetics and biologics might be the way to go in the future. So we've started using a material called POS-PCU, developed in the Division of Surgery up here. Um, and in March of this year, it was put into a patient in Sweden. Uh, and in October, we put, it, uh, put this into a patient at UCLH, uh, a totally engineered trachea made from POS-PCU, recellularized in exactly the same way as we've been doing for the decellularized graft. Now, the advantages of this material are that it's going to have biomechanical rigidity, the sort of rigidity that we did not see for a long time in Kieran, and that was a problem with, with Claudia too. So you can get that, but getting the cells to stick is a big issue. Getting angiogenesis is a big issue. If we could understand which of those molecules that we've now found by those proteomics techniques are really important in getting angiogenesis and cell growth in our uh, decellularized biological scaffolds, then perhaps we could decorate our synthetics to make them intelligent scaffolds. And then we'd have the best of both worlds, something off the shelf that we could put into people that would do the things we need it to do. Uh, this is the synthetic scaffold going into the patient uh, in uh, UCLH in October, and she's doing fine. She's back home in Brighton, in fact. Um, and that's the first time anybody's had the complete trachea replaced. Well, it's a brilliant surgeons here. I mean, one of the wonderful things about working at the biggest bioactive university in Europe uh, is, is the fact that we're also linked to some of the biggest hospital groups as well. And uh, you, can, you can go around and build a team of scientists, doctors, surgeons, engineers, experts in business, by walking a mile from where you're sitting, you can build world-class teams. And, and really, I don't believe we could have delivered this as quickly as we did for this desperate patient anywhere else in the world. I genuinely don't believe it. That's Claudia, who's well to this day, and that's Kieran, who's still smiling. So that's great, and that's, that's wonderful hype, and it, it's, it's very heartwarming. But they are one-offs. So let me take you back to Anthony Atala, and indeed to Christian Barnard. One swallow doth not a summer make. We need to do a lot more. We've been able to do these because you can do one-offs under exceptional circumstances where patients are desperately ill. You can do it under what's called a, a hospital's exemption certificate. And you can prepare the materials on, under what's called a, a specials license in specially accredited laboratories. But you can't... So the minute you say, OK, we'd now like to do five of these, it becomes a clinical trial. And as soon as something's a clinical trial, and these things count as drugs you're then into the whole regulatory framework necessary to accredit a drug. And we don't have big pharmaceutical companies behind us. So it then becomes difficult to translate these one-offs into bigger numbers. It's something that all countries are grappling with right now. And by working with our regulators, I think we're actually starting to get some on this. So we hope we will have the first trials going of this in about 18 months' time, we hope. 
And in the meantime, we're still in a position to do one-offs, incrementally improving them as we go. But we need time as well. Six months reporting, as in Claudia's case, is not enough. We've seen her develop stenosis very recently. We don't know what she's going to be like in another year's time. Uh, we need plenty of time. And there are other potential complications of using stem cells. We don't know that Claudia's not going to develop some kind of tumour because we stuck stem cells into her. It's extremely unlikely. First of all, because we've followed her for a while anyway, but also because MSCs, mesenchymal stem cells, have an extremely high safety uh, profile. They've been used in something like 10 to 20,000 patients now for hematological disorders around the world, and none of them have developed any malignancy. So we believe we're doing, dealing with something very safe. But we need time to see how these, these things work. Time and numbers. This is a desolarized larynx. One day I'd very much like to be able to put one of these in, but it's very thick, unlike the trachea, Angiogenesis is not going to support the whole thing, which is why we're now working on ways of decellularizing organs by using their own vascular supply. Here, what we're going to end up with is something that's like a transplanted organ. It's been decellularized through its own vessels, so you can sew those same vessels back into the body again. So, in effect, it's like a transplant, but it ain't going to reject. And, in fact, what you find here is that if you do this, all the blood vessels, down to the level of small capillaries, retain their basement membranes, and they don't leak. You get no leakiness. And there are circulating endothelial progenitor cells which line these blood vessels very quickly and allow it to support its own blood supply. Now, this is a piece of bowel. Actually, making the complex uh, epithelium necessary to make functioning bowel is another matter altogether. But we potentially have a way of building organs this way, uh, making them survive. Now, this is very exciting work being done at Great Ormond Street. Um, we are now in a position to identify congenital abnormalities in kids a lot earlier than before using various screening techniques. And sometimes you have months before a baby's born um, uh, before, and you can plan for, for that birth. Unfortunately, some of the abnormalities are presently incompatible with life, especially airway problems. Kids born without a trachea cannot survive. Now, actually, amniotic fluid is a very rich source of stem cells, and they are very versatile stem cells. And of course, they're the same stem cells. They have the same uh, HLA as that, that baby, so they're the baby's own stem cells too. And you can retrieve this some months if necessary, antepartum. And in theory, you can use that to seed onto a scaffold. You can build an organ in preparation for a baby being born. And we have an operating theatre at UCLH where you can do something called exit procedures, which is where the baby can remain attached to the mum who's under a GA, be delivered by caesarean section, and you can operate on the baby prior to dividing the placenta. So you've then got complete freedom. This is done for heart surgery at the moment, but we believe we could probably do it for airway surgery too. And there's now kind of a race between Harvard and Great Ormond Street to see who's going to be able to do this first. Paladin copies the surgeon responsible. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Surgeon who actually does understand stem cells, so you should be asking him next time. Okay, here's Prometheus again, who, um, who went on to be uh, even naughtier than creating humans. Having created them, he then gave them fire. Uh, and, and this gave them enormous power and independence, the kind of power and independence the gods really, really didn't want them to have. Uh, and so they were, they were pretty pissed off. And so what they did was uh, they chained him to a rock and they had uh, an eagle pick out his liver every day for eternity. <laughs> Which is a, it's a bit rough, isn't it? I have to say. It's a, it's a little harsh. Now, by chance, whether they knew it or not, of course, uh, livers have a great capacity for regeneration. So actually, um, it's, it's interesting that they should choose that. Here we have Jeremy Brocks, uh, this university, who specialises in studying uh, regeneration. And he's worked on the genes that are responsible for newts uh, regrowing their limbs and so on. 
Uh, he tells us that, uh, unfortunately, humans don't have the analogues which would allow us to regrow limbs in the same way that newts will. Uh, but nonetheless, there may be parallels in some of that work which will allow us to better understand um, intrinsic regeneration. Okay, so we're not the only ones in this field. There's a lot of other people. And this was some exciting work that came out of Boston last year. How do you build a lung? Well, you actually do exactly what we've done for the trachea, only you do it with a lung is the answer. And here they did it for a, uh, a rat. Uh, and they were actually created some very nice-looking lungs, um, which were able to support this, this rat for eight hours, able to oxygenate the rat for eight hours, which I think is quite impressive, actually. So, so that's certainly something you can do by decellularization, recellularization with stem cells, here, pulmonary epithelium, vascular epithelium, keep them alive. But we have huge numbers of challenges still ahead of us. Uh, we need to bridge this funding gap, uh, which is still present, of course. Um, the way to regulate... So these are the issues I've just been talking about. How do you get from one-offs and animals into human beings for all this stuff, which is very complex. And none of big farmers are dipping their toes in the water at the moment. Uh, the small uh, regenerative medicine companies trying to take on one product at a time. But right now, in a global recession and with no certainty that these very expensive products are really going to make it, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, we need to also manage public expectations, as I say. Remember, my entrance exam in, okay, it was 1979, was about the prospects of gene therapy. And now, in 2011, we're really seeing it happening. So we're talking about it now, and it may be 20 years before we're really starting to replace organ transplantation with these things. This was Christopher Reeve, who was a great... I'm sorry, the font changed into... I don't like that font. Anyway, uh, Christopher Reeve, who, uh, of course, as you know, had a severe spinal injury. Um, and he was a great uh, proponent of the application of stem cells, or exploration of stem cells, in any case. Um, because George Bush's uh, regime uh, were um, ridiculously anti-all stem cells, they just didn't get it that actually most stem cell research is not embryonic stem cells. It just isn't. Um, he, he lobbied and lobbied, and he lobbied successfully with California. So they set up a thing called the California Institute for Genetic Medicine, which was set up with something like $30 billion of uh, Californian taxpayers' money, uh, set, put into bonds so it's protected, and that's equivalent to, today, the uh, state debt of California. But they can't get at it, and it's protected in stem cell research. Unfortunately, um, he passed away one month before uh, that was approved and he said, so many of our dreams at first seem impossible, then they seem improbable. I think at this stage, we're at the improbable stage. I mean, I'd love to say that, you know, we've really got it with airways, and now we're going to move on to esophagus, and now we're going to move on to heart and lungs. But I, I, I can't, in all honesty, say that hand on heart. What I can say is, we've made some great strides. And there is absolutely potential for us to use these kinds of technologies to replace organs in the future. When we summon the will, we hope it'll all become inevitable. And there's an awful lot of people here and elsewhere who have helped us do all this. Uh, closing comment is from Brenda, who was our recipient of a, of a laryngeal transplant last year. She's very happy. She's able to talk to her grandchildren for the first time. And she's extremely happy. And she said at a press conference, I don't know what the future may bring, but it's sure will be better than what we've left behind. And I'm sure that's true also of transplantation and stem cell technologies. I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I think it's going to be absolutely better than what we've got at the moment with transplantation. Thank you.